0: You informed and inspired. We love God, we ought to be able to talk about Him.
1: Getting you started on your day. With the latest in breaking news and information from the Vatican to the White House and everything in between. It's
2: serious, it's fun, it's your Catholic drive time.
3: Now, here's your host, Joe Joe McClain. Praise be to Jesus Christ. And guess what day it is? Today is Friday Junior. It is Thursday. It is Thursday. It is almost, we're almost done with the retreat and Joe and I will be back in studio tomorrow morning. So don't fret. But today is another pre-recorded show. Praise be to God. It's a great interview today with Noel Maring on her book, Awake Not Woke. Oh, it's going to be excellent. And I'm sure Joe and I are having a great time at the retreat. I'm sure we have, like if we were in studio, we'd be talking about how amazing it is, how beautiful the chapel is, and how amazing the talks were. Uh, All this I'm sure we're going to be talking about when we get into the studio tomorrow. Uh, But today, I'm actually recording this on Friday, and it is a week from, almost a week from today whenever this is being aired. But uh, praise be to God. We are going to have a little bit of a different format, so no breaking news today. Uh, no, uh, we will have a Saint of the day. We will have a gospel of the day and, uh, but no breaking news, no good news segment of the day. And, uh, they, all segments will be uh, covered with Noelle Maring's interview on her book, Awake Not Woke. You know, I just have to say, I really enjoyed this interview. I thought it was a, um, a great topic. I can't wait to actually finish reading the book. I was able to skim over it before the interview and I listened to a couple of her, her um, her other interviews that she's done and this book is excellent i just i just love everything about it it kind of reminds me of uh michael Knowles' book um uh, the uh speechless controlling words controlling minds that book uh, this book these two i think go together extremely well these they think Michael knows does a really good job of showing forth the situation from a secular perspective and breaking it down for people who are not Catholic. And this book does an excellent job of showing the real solutions, which are, is the faith. No other, there's no other solution out there. Anyway, the show will go on forward. We will have the memorare. We'll pray the memorare in just a second. We're not going to have a breaking news segment. Then we'll have gospel of the day, saint of the day and the opposite order. And we'll have a brief gospel reflection. Sponsored by um, verboom.com forward slash CDT. And then we'll go to break. And after the break, we'll have the interview with Noel Maring. So with uh, a chock full of great content today. And tomorrow we'll be back in studio. And there's no game show today. So don't call in. No game show. Uh, but next week. So don't worry. Uh, don't fret. The game show will continue tomorrow. As I mean, not tomorrow. The next week on Monday. So on Monday we will have a uh, a regularly scheduled. Catholic trivia game show, but for today, don't call in. Otherwise, no one's going to be answering. There's nobody on the phones, so you will just be sitting on hold. I mean, you're free to do so if you would, if you'd like, but for today, um, we are not going to have a game show. Alrighty, so praise be to God. We're going to jump into the gospel of the day, the saint of the day, and uh, a brief gospel reflection. In the name of the Father and the Son and in the Holy Ghost. Amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother. To thee do I come, before thee I stand, sinful and sorrowful. O Mother of the Word incarnate, despise not my petitions, but in thy mercy, hear and answer me. Amen. And uh, no breaking news of the day, and we'll go straight into the saint of the day. The saint of the day is St. Bernard of Clairvaux, who happened to be the one who wrote the Memorare. Mm, interesting, huh? He was born in 1090 and was born near Dijon and died in Clairvaux, France. He was of a noble family and received a careful education in his youth. With his father, brother, and 30 noblemen, he entered the Benedictine Monastery of Chittau. The two year Two years later, he led a group of monks to establish a house in Clairvaux and became its abbot. The monastic rule, which he perfected at Clairvaux, became the model for 163 monasteries of the Cistercian reform. He was a theologian, a poet, an orator, and a writer—a man of many, many talents. He is sometimes considered as a father of the Church, Saint Bernard of Clairvaux. He was the second founder of the Cistercians, the Malefius Order, the and the apostle of the Crusades. So he would go on the Crusades and preach the Crusades. So people who say crusades are bad. St. Bernard of Clairvaux seemed not to think so. He would go on the crusades with the crusaders and preach on the crusades for the crusades and encourage many to join. The miracle worker, he was known as a miracle worker. He was a reconciler of kings, leaders of peoples, and counselor of the popes. He has a very long resume. His sermons, from which there are many excerpts in the breviary, are are conspicuous for genuine emotion in the spiritual unction, and the celebrated Memorare is ascribed to him. He was the third son of an illustrious Burgundian family. At the age of 22, he entered the monastery of Chetau, and he persuaded 30 other youths, along with his family, to join. He's the patron of beekeepers, bees, candle makers, channelers, wax melters, wax refiners, uh, Queen College, and Cambridge. Interesting. And I will pray the colic prayer for the feast of St. Bernard of Clairvaux. O God, who made the abbot St. Bernard, a man consumed with zeal for your house, and a light shining and burning in your church, grant that through his intercession, that we may be on fire with the same spirit, and walk always as children of light, through our Lord Jesus Christ, your son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Ghost, one God forever and ever. Amen. Saint Bernard of Clairvaux, pray for us. The gospel of the day is from the gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. Jesus, again, in reply, spoke to the chief priests and the elders of the people in parables, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be likened to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He dispatched his servants to summon the invited guests to the feast, but they refused to come. A second time he sent over servants saying, Tell those invited, Behold, I have prepared my banquet, my calves and fattened cattle are killed, and everything is ready. Come to the feast. Some ignored the invitation and went away. One to his farm, another to his business. The rest laid hold of his servants, mistreated them, And killed them. The king was enraged and sent his troops, destroyed those murderers, and burned their city. Then the king said to his servant, The feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy to come. Go out therefore into the main roads and invite to the feast whomever you find. The servants went out into the streets and gathered all they found, the bad and the good alike, and the hall was filled with guests. And when the king came in to meet the guest, he saw a man there, not dressed in a wedding garment. He said to him, My friend, how is it that you came in here without a wedding garment? But he, re- he was reduced to silence. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind his hands and feet, and cast him into the darkness outside, where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. Many are invited, but few are chosen. The Gospel of the Lord praise be to jesus christ the gospel of the day is uh underwritten and sponsored by um, verboom.com forward slash cdt so thank you very much for allowing us to have the opportunity to comment on the gospel and honestly this gospel passage is one of my favorite gospel passages why is this one of my favorite gospel passages because it has some of my favorite uh objections that are being refuted here in this parable. It is excellent. It is excellent. So I'm going to walk you through this parable. What is our Lord trying to say here? Uh, there's a lot to unpack, and uh, we will, I think we should have enough time to get through it all today because we don't have uh, we have cut out a lot of stuff for, from this segment because it's a pre-recorded show. So number one is the kingdom of heaven may be likened to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Who's the son? Well, that's pretty clear. The king is the father. The son is the son, which is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. he dispatched his servants to summon the invited guests to the feast, but they refused to come. Who was the servants in which he summoned initially? Well, we know those would be the Jews. So the Jews were asked, hey, come to the feast. And what happened? The Jews rejected the faith. We see that throughout the Old Testament, the constant uh, cycle of rejection of our Lord, and in the coming back, our Lord sends the, uh, the judges to come and save the Israelites from their own captivity. They place themselves in by their disobedience to God's law, by their worshiping of false idols, by their mortal sins, and they fall away, and they refuse to come to the feast which our Lord prepared. Our Lord literally rains manna from heaven and gives them water from rocks, and they still reject him. Our Lord has set, summoned us, you and I, but initially he summoned the Jews. And that was the feast that initially was rejected. A second time he sent out the servants saying, tell those invited. Behold, I have prepared my banquet. My calves and fat and cattle are killed. Everything is ready. Come. Some ignored the invitation and went away. One to his farm, another to his business. They killed his servants. Okay, what is happening here? Well, in one sense, it's, it's, the, it's our Lord being killed. By the Jews? Because the Jews, what happened? Our Lord keeps going back and says but to the Jews after they rejected him, he keeps coming back to him and saying, come to the feast, come to the feast. And what happens? What well, we see in scripture, our Lord says a prophet is not welcome in his own home. He is often rejected, rebuked, and sometimes even killed. And so, uh, what does our Lord do after this? Well, He wants, one thing he does is he goes and destroys those murderers and burned their city. So what does that imply? Hmm, what is it, what is it, what is it, what is it it called when someone is burned for a long time, you know, or in an ultimate murder, an ultimate death? Well, that would be hell. No, that would be hell. Why, what happens in hell? You have eternal damnation. It is eternal death because eternal life is in heaven. Eternal death is in hell where the worm dieth not. And they burn their city, it'll be on fire. Uh, the the Everything will be in flames. Everything will be burning and never uh, consumed, which is the uh, unconsuming fire that will burn and you'll never ge- be desensitized from. It's the worst kind of fire because in a natural fire, we experience the flame And initially the flame may be so hot that it destroys the cells in our skin that we no longer feel the fires anymore. But for the fires of hell, this is not true. You'll never be desensitized for it. You'll never uh, get used to it. It'll never kill the cells in your body because initially you will just be a soul. And then at the second coming, you will have your body, but your body will be a glorified body. It'll feel pain because it's a damned body but it will still be able to feel the eternal pains that are waiting. What's the next point here? Our Lord then goes and says, okay, well, you know what? These people were not worthy. Now, some came. We saw that. Some came. So we know that some of the Jews converted and started became followers of Christ. But many, and I would say even most, rejected him. And so what does our Lord do? Our Lord, who desires the salvation of souls, who desires that all men be saved, that all come to the banquet, says, go out, therefore, into the main roads and invite to the feast whomever you find. Okay, so what happens? The servants, that's you and I, the disciples, those who are called to go out and preach the gospel to all nations, we go out and we say, okay, everybody come in. The, the doors are open. All are welcome. And so what happens? Okay, well, some come. So some come, some show up to the feast. They are come, they're here for the bread of eternal life. But what does St. Paul say about the bread of eternal life? What does he say about eating the body and blood of our Lord? If you eat and drink of the body and blood unworthily, you die. You eat and drink your own damnation. And so what happens here, our Lord, who is the king, here says that saw a man there not dressed in a wedding garment and said to him, my friend, how is it that you came in here without a wedding garment? Now, what is the wedding garment? The wedding garment can be understood in a couple ways. One way is that the purity of the person was the person in mortal sin. They decided to show up to the feast. They started to show up in mortal sin. They presented themselves for the feast, for the holy sacrifice of the mass, to receive our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, present in reality. Present body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Blessed Sacrament with an putting on his wedding garment. In another sense, in a more modern sense, people often bring up the objection, okay, well, you know, God doesn't care what I wear to church. God doesn't care. I can wear shorts and a t-shirt to church because, you know, God just wants me to show up. God just wants me to be there. Well, I mean, if you read this parable, it seems like that may not be true. It seems like our Lord desires that we dress up, that we give him the best that we can, that we provide all that we can to our Lord because we love him. Because he loves us, because he desires what is greatest for us. And so what should we do? We should dress appropriately for mass. We should dress with our, what we used to call our Sunday best. And so what happens here? He saw a man there not dressed in a wedding garment. And he said to him, my friend, how is it that you came in here without a wedding garment? And he bound his hands and feet and cast him into hell, where there'll be wailing and grinding of teeth. Praise be to God. Thank you, Verum.com forward slash CDT for uh, sponsoring this gospel reflection segment. After this break, don't go anywhere. Uh, we will have Awake, Not Woke. Noel marrying right after the break, so don't go anywhere. God bless. God love you. See you on the other side.
4: It is here where you'll find the best marriage counselor, greatest healer, wisest teacher, and closest friend. It's a place where you'll escape the chaos of the world and find the lasting peace that only comes from God. Jesus is personally waiting to embrace you now with His divine mercy and healing love. Jesus is calling you home to His sacred heart today. I need a mercy. I need a
3: Savior. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Thank you very much for joining us today. And uh, today is a special episode. We are not in the studio today. Today, we are at a retreat in Midland, Texas. And so we have a pre-recorded interview for you today. Um, Noelle Marings is on with us. She is a fellow at the Washington, D.C.-based think tank, the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She writes regularly on the topics of politics, culture, and religion, and has a background in philosophy as well as home design. She is the co-author of Theology of the Home and a frequent contributor to National Catholic Register, The American Mind, The Federalist, and Catholic World Report. And she's the editor for uh, Theologyofhome.com and lives in Sel- Southern California with her husband and six children. If you want to find out more about her or see any of her work, uh, you can check her out on www.noelmaring.com And uh, without further ado, uh, good morning, uh, Noelle.
5: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, for what was the uh, what's the name of your book again? Remind me.
5: It's called Awake Not Woke. And the subtitle is A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology.
3: Wonderful. And why did you decide to write this book to begin with? It seems like uh, a kind of a sketchy book to write at a time like this, like you might get a lot of backlash for writing about this.
5: Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Sometimes I do. Uh, I've been writing about the woke movement for a few years now in various publications, uh, and it's just an endlessly fascinating topic to me. But mostly the mo- main motivation for in writing this book was that I noticed that increasingly Christians were becoming, you know, woke and getting kind of pulled into this movement. And I see it as for, uh, very harmful in two ways. One, to the very people it most aims to help. I think it is the opposite of empowering people. I think it actually weakens them. And secondly, because I think its its ultimate aim is to replace Christ in the hearts of men. Mm. Um, It it sort of feeds off Christian precepts parasitically and with the ultimate goal of replacing them with this new sort of secular progressive religion.
3: Absolutely. I was thinking about this. I was uh, skimming over your book. I received it a couple hours ago and was trying to skim through it real quickly. And one thing that really jumped out at me is this, the left and the progressive movement—it seems like a counter church. Like they have their own idea of sacraments and abortion. They have their own. Uh, they have their own scripture and magisterium and the capital S trademark over the E science. Um, they have their own uh, ideology. They have their own dogmas. I'm thinking of G.K. Chesterton's famous quote that he uh, says the world is is filled with uh, the modern world is filled with men who hold dogmas so strongly that they do not even know that they are dogmas. It may be said even that the modern world as a corporate body holds certain dogmas so strongly that it does not know that they are dogmas. And uh, I think this is really the point that you're getting at here. Uh, could you comment on the dogma, dogmatic nature of the uh, the progress- progressive movement?
5: Sure. So in my book, I break it down into three main dogmas, which are actually just based on three distortions that I think that they fundamentally um, emphasize one thing to the detriment of the other. The first is uh, the emphasis on group to the detriment of the human person. The second is an emphasis on our will over our reason or nature. And the third is an emphasis on power over right authority. So, in the first, um, the emphasis on group over person. You know, people are meant to be in groups. Uh, we're made to be communal, um, but but a healthy a healthy group is one that has the good of the individual in harmony with the good of the group. So you see this most clearly in the in a well functioning family, whereas the, whereas the good of each member is also the good of, of the family itself, and vice versa. Um, and in the woke movement, they really pit the group against the person. So the person has to be diminished for the sake of the of the of the group identity. Um, people are reduced to totems or instantiations of their of their group identity. And if you don't embrace the politics, then you are um, ultimately rejected as the, any possibility of being a representative of your group. For example, the Nicole Hannah Jones, one of the main the main author of the sixteen nineteen projects project, famous, famously said that it is different to be racially black versus politically black what did she mean she means that if it's not sufficient to be racially black if you don't embrace the woke uh, agenda then you are you can be deplatformed you cannot represent your group um, that, that's that somewhere in the core of your personhood is defined by oppression and so if you're not fight embracing that a definition of yourself by fighting oppression in the manner that the woke see fit, then you are not fully living out your humanity. Um, and you see this also in the way that, the during the pro, the Women's March in 2017, there was a pro-life feminist group that wanted to march with them, and they were disavowed. They were not allowed to have any official affiliation with the march, why? Because they didn't embrace the core of their womanhood, which is fighting or their oppression through the most, in the most direct, and as you said, sort of, um, uh, sacramental for the left means, which is the ability to kill your own child, uh, and so in that and that in that way, it really is diminishing of the human person because it's why because it's the, if, unless you embracing power the power the movement that is aimed at power, then you cannot be um, a, a representative and you cannot your ideas will not be embraced. So it's not about empowering the individual in that group; it's about empower, empowering the ideology.
3: You know, that's incredibly fascinating because the, the left and the progressivist will try to, and I repeat myself, and they would try to, uh, attack the church and say, you know, oh, the Catholic church are all so dogmatic. The Catholic church is, uh, is, is, is not reasonable. It's a uh, science deniers and all these uh, things. But at the same time, wokeness itself seems to be a sort of, and I don't mean this in a pejorative, a a sort of a mental illness. It turns your brain to mush and reduces your vision to that of a purely accidental nature. But at the same time, it says the exact opposite and says you are not your body. You are how you feel. You are your inner thoughts. You are your, your mind. And it has this weird dualism where he, they deny the body and affirm the, I don't know, the, their idea of a soul. But then it d- deny the soul and say you are only your accidental parts of your, of your body, namely your skin color, your gender, uh, and the like. Uh, so wh- how do they meld these things? How do they reconcile these two dichotomies?
5: Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, it, it's, it, it starts with a materialism and ends with this this Gnosticism that's in full denial of the body um, for the sake of the will. And that, so that really t- um, d- dives into the second dogma, which is the emphasis on will over reason or nature. Um, we can call this therapy, therapeutic culture or expressive individualism. Those are usually how people refer to this phenomenon. But the idea really is that we can Define who we are in defiance of bodily reality or scientific reality, um, and it, and it it ends up being it's based on sort of a neo-Freudianism. So the the Marx the Marxists who brought this movement into America were, it was called the Frankfurt School, and they were neo-Marxists and neo-Freudians, and the Freudian element really undergirded this philosophy. That, um, that human beings are meant to be liberated, not only from other political groups or oppressive groups, but also from our own repressive tendency to um, defer to a, a sort of sexual norm. And so the way that we become liberated from that sort of self-imposed repression, as they would say, is to find what it is about ourselves that we truly desire that is the most transgressive um, piece of our, of our inner desires. And then to identify it and to embrace it and to live it out and to express it. And that, that is part of our liberation. That's the hallmark of the truly free man, according to the woke. Um, and this is why you see like at pride parades, for example, uh, they seem to be a competing, you know, an, a, a competition for who can present themselves the most outlandishly because in being in flying your freak flag, you know, as, as you know, a certain children's musical, I think it was, um, troll, uh, not trolls, um, Shrek, the musical <laughs> sings a song called fly your freak flag. You know, these are messages that they seed uh, all for the sake of this sort of expressive individualism. But really just it, it is about embracing and identifying and living out your trans your, your transgressions, because the moral law, according to this movement, is actually the ultimate oppressor or God himself and the the moral law that which flows from the very nature of our Lord.
3: Absolutely. And that kind of reminds me of the uh, we just did an interview with Alan Smith. He just put out a new uh, an anthology of Fulton Sheen's on The sacraments, and in it, uh, Fulton Sheen talks about the sacrament of penance and how the sacrament of penance today has been replaced. And I don't mean to denigrate therapy. Yes, some people need therapy. Some people need to see uh, people to for that kind of help. But as a whole, Fulton Sheen makes the point: we have replaced the sacrament of confession, where you get on your knees, your feet sticking out of the box your heart humbled confessing accusing yourself in the old rite used to you would say i accuse myself of the following sins and uh, and you have and you have judged yourself uh, unworthy in this kind of world instead we have replaced that according to Fulton Sheen with a therapy t- uh, chair, with a table—I mean, a uh, couch—you lay there, and instead of confessing your sins, you uh, make the point of saying, "Oh, look how unique I am! Look how—how uh, how, look at my problems. My problems are unique; they're not like anyone else's." And it becomes an inward look instead of an outward look. Whereas in confession, you're thinking of God: "How I offended you above all things." And whenever we look at the confessional, we're looking inward and saying, uh, it's a, it's an inward focus, an I, a me, me, me. And, uh, and that's, I feel like that's kind of the root of a lot of the wokeism. A lot of these people are not able to think of anything outside of themselves.
5: Yeah, I think you're making a great point. And and I think you make a good distinction too, which is that therapy is good and can be very helpful for many people. But what what, what you're identifying is that there is an ideology of therapy where it becomes sort of its own, it, it, it becomes sort of a, uh, a mechanism for driving this ideology home. And so there, there's an important distinction there. Um, and, but what you're pin- pinpointing with confession is really actually have a, a, a large part of my, the end of, towards the end of my book about the restoration. And I really find that confession to be the absolute antidote to this movement because it does the exact opposite of what the movement asks us to do, which is <clears throat> the movement asks us to um, accuse, you know, as, as as the father of lies does. He's the great accuser, right? Um, well, the movement really sustains and um, feeds itself off of finding perpetual perpetrators. Because if we want to, the way you gain power, according to this movement, and also conceal your power is by being in the victim group. Well, if you're a perpetual victim, you need a perpetual um, perpetrator, and so there's it it feeds off of the accusation. This is when, and and when you can't find some um, someone to accuse, then you go into the invisible, right? You go to the microaggressions, you go to the systemic forces that are outside of our control that we can't really quite put our finger on. Um, You go into all these things because there always has to be an oppressor, and confession is the exact opposite as you elucidate. So. In the confession, we are forced to confront ourselves without deflection, without um, excuse, but to really, truly look at ourselves regularly and um, deeply, and, and, and that really is the antidote to this movement. Because if once we understand how much we need mercy, we we know how much we need we need our Lord, and we also look upon others with more merciful eyes. Um, You know, and, and the church really teaches us that you cannot judge the hearts of another person. In fact, you see there's so many stories of saints where they're, you know, they may go to great pains to say, if I cannot excuse the action of another, I can at least excuse the intent. Perhaps there was some, you know, a confusion or some sorrow that mitigated the culpability here, but you know, but but I can still understand that the action is wrong, but I excuse the person. The woke movement is the absolute opposite. They say you can't. There's no actions that are really wrong. You know, the, there's no moral law. But I can know who is good and who is bad based on their skin color or based on their genitalia or based on, you know, I don't know whatever whatever the whatever you can base it on. But we've moved from judging the acts of men to judging the hearts of men, and that becomes a much more harsh and uh, judgmental system society and to, to borrow their their um, pejorative
1: defines an indulgence as a remission before God of the temporal punishment due to sins whose guilt has already been forgiven. But is it biblical to say punishment remains after God has forgiven our sins and that we can do something to satisfy it? I think it is. For example, David is forgiven of his sin in 2 Samuel 12, but yet must suffer the death of his son. Even Jesus teaches in Luke 12 that the servant who sins without full knowledge will be punished but in a lesser degree. It is such temporal consequences that indulgences remit. Exercising her power to bind and loose, the church grants indulgences to help her children heed St. Paul's exhortation in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation. So, is the Catholic understanding of an indulgence biblical? You bet it is. I'm Carlo Brusard with the ready reason for Catholic Answers, Catholic.com.
3: Howdy! This is Adrian Fonseca, producer of the Catholic Drive Time show, heard Monday through Friday, 6 a.m. Central and 7 a.m. Eastern, right here on the Waterloo Bay Radio Network. And I'm proud to tell you that Real Estate for Life is an underwriter of Catholic Drive Time. Real Estate for Life connects home buyers and sellers to real estate agents while supporting pro-life organizations, offering their clients a faith-based experience. They are online at realestateforlife.org. That's realestateforlife.org. God love you.
5: is the absolute opposite. They say you can't. There's no actions that are really wrong. You know, there's no moral law. But I can know who is good and who is bad based on their skin color, or based on their genitalia, or based on, you know, I don't know, whatever, whatever the, whatever you can base it on. But we've moved from judging the acts of men to judging the hearts of men, and that becomes a much more harsh and uh, judgmental society. You know, to, to borrow their their uh, pejorative favorite pejorative of judgmentalism. Um, If if we truly want to be um, a charitable society, we have to have understand a common moral language. And we also have to understand our own sins.
3: Wow, that was amazing. Uh, a lot of points there. Uh, if you're, if you want to dive into that deeper, you're going to have to grab her book. Uh, but yes, th- there are so many threads there that I want to pick up and I'm going to choose one at random. The anti, uh, with the boogeyman. There's a boogeyman out there. You got to invent ideas. And one of the ones that I've seen very commonly that kind of creeps into a just average everyday discussion uh and your friend Carrie Gress she writes a lot about this the anti-man movement uh, the or the feminist movement but in reality it became an anti-man movement and it's common to for to refer to men and for men now to refer to themselves as slobs as knuckle draggers as dumb as weak they say they call them themselves that where does this come from and uh where do the boogeyman of the straight white male uh, how do we overcome that
5: yeah, well, it's a great question. I think it's incredibly important one. Um, in my book, I really t- uh, dive into the history of the anti father movement, you know, because I think that father, you know, that the third dogma that I identify is the emphasis on power over th- authority. And I really think that the attack on authority is an attack on fatherhood, both human and divine. Um, and and, I, and that was a really explicit part of the movement from every writer from Marx to Herbert Marcuse, um, that they really understood. Early on that if you want to if you want to revolutionize society, it has to come by way of the destruction of the family and how do you get out of the family? you, you attack the legitimacy of the fa- of fatherhood. when you get fathers to be licentious, you get them to be tomcats as um, Ingalls, I think wrote and once you do that then women become hardened and calloused because they don't feel protected or tr- they don't feel they, they can trust. Um, the person that they, they loved, and then children become rebellious, so you get every member every aspect of the family through that through that corruption of the father, his moral authority is eroded and then and then you you end up with a society full of uh, pathologies and wounds and then this is the this is the one of the more maddening parts of the movement so what did they do once that they 've attacked the family and you have this whole society of very deeply wounded people, they po- look to those wounds and point to them as further evidence to Attack the 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 patriarchy to attack the the oppression of family life to attack you know women caring you know being homemakers you know all these things, um, and and I'm not, you know obviously that's not to say that every woman is supposed to be a homemaker but there's a beauty there and a dignity that if we we fail we fail to acknowledge to our own detriment. So, um, so, so they double down on the very wounds that, the, that this movement created. They double down on them on for, as further evidence that we need to keep attacking the family, mm. uh, which, you know, it's, it's, it's just maddening. But, um, but yeah, but that was an explicit strategy. It was not accidental and it's been incredibly successful um you know you see even madonna came out with a statement the other day they smashed the patriarchy it's like he, they've been oppressing me or something it's like you know you're you're living in this i' I'm all at any any secular understanding of society you've achieved success <laughs> i'm not sure what's exactly oppressing her at this point but um yeah it's they just gonna keep gonna keep repeating these lies and i and i think people are starting to see through them everyone understands that the, you know, the, most pathologies you can be traced back to either poor fatherhood, poor fathers or absent ones. Um, fatherhood is incredibly important. And it is also the way in which a certain aspect of God's authority is expressed to children. Um, you know, you, children just intuit that there is some sort of authority that, you know, men have a deeper voices, broader shoulders, you know, there is some element of that protection and um, are, are, are he's shouldering this sort of responsibility and protection for the family. Uh, in the similar ways that we see in, in women's bodies, that we are made to to be nurturers, we're made to be relational. That you know, we're made to be beautiful, um, and also to connect with other human beings in a very particular way. Both genders can, you know, both both sexes can do have the attributes of the other. Women can be leaders, men can be can also nurture, but. They are most iconic, like the iconography of man and women are explicitly intended and created to express certain aspects of God's love in a very beautiful, powerful way. Uh, And I think when we erode those distinctions, um, we really lose that that understanding of of who of of, the, of this beautiful marriage. You know, that God made two different sexes for a reason. Uh, otherwise, He would just made a whole society of you know just men or just women. Um, and, and we need to understand that and really see what we're called to be and live that out. And if we want to have happy, flourishing lives,
3: absolutely. That's that was great. That was a great summary of that. And the progressivist movement. It's always necessarily intertwined with the communist movement. And the communist movement is a very fundamentally denial of this. I was reading and we interviewed uh, Michael Knowles in his book, Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. And he t- talks about this quite a bit. And I can't remember the exact quote that he puts in there. Where he talks about how during the feminist movement, they not only said that they want, want women in the workforce. But they said that we must force women into the workforce because if given the option, many will not take it. Um, and I know that's true for my mother. My mother was a stay-at-home mom, and I'm very grateful uh, for that in my life. And I know many people as well. Uh, going back to the victimhood uh, our st- statement earlier, where does this hierarchy of victimhood, how on earth, how does this work? And the question becomes, like, who is the they that are that are creating these ideas? Who? I, I, it's just like some glob that one day this is the new victim that's the highest level and then the next day it's another group and uh, me who has none of the right dogmas but has the right skin color where do i fall in and the victim status
5: yeah so i mean i think what you're drilling into is that the concept of intersectionality that was first coined by kimberly crenshaw i think it was in 89 91 uh her her writing mapping the margins um, but yeah, it becomes a sort of oppression Olympics, right? I, I have not coined that phrase; somebody else did. But um, where you kind of you can uh, you can compound your various group identities, and the more that you stack on top of each other, then the, the greater perspective or positionality you would have, as the movement would say. So you have a greater access to truth with the more categories of oppression you can, you can claim. So for example, and and it gets really absurd. I mean, I just saw something the other day and it was saying that black men are the new white men of black and women. (laughs) In other words to say that that black men in their own way are oppressors, you know, from the perspective of the black woman. And then, you know, if you're a black woman who is also, you know, um, gender, um, non-binary, you know, also a lesbian. You know, you, right, you, so where does, like, the transgender
3: mean, movement come into this? Because if you're a woman who identifies as a man, does that make you now an evil oppressor? Are you part of the yeah, patriarchy?
5: Yeah, I have an anecdote in my book, actually, about a, a woman at Wellesley College who identified as a man, and then she ran for a position in student body, and there became a campaign among the very liberal campus saying that she that she, as a white male was not representative enough of the diversity of the campus and she, she was confused she's like i don't want to perpetuate the patriarchy but i also think that you know because i'm transgender i do i, I am a diverse person anyway it but this is what happens with the movement it's it's, it's there's no harmony here and so it ends up eating itself um, because there's internal contradictions that can't be resolved, this is why you see women fighting the transgender movement um because you know they they rightly understand it to be the- eras- eradication of of womanhood um you know I mean, now that we say chest feeding and you know mm. people who can birth birthing babies, women
3: are birthing people right? yeah birthing
5: people right right.
3: Yeah, that's, that's horrible. The uh, progressive movement is, uh, I love the quote from Chesterton. He said, um, the progressivists are really good at breaking things and conservatives are really good at making sure they never get fixed. Um, and so <laughs> I love that quote because it's it's really true. I mean, the answer isn't in, I mean, the conservative movement, of of course, it's a good thing, but it's not sufficient. I, I prefer the terms that the, uh, if you're familiar with the American Defense for Tradition, Family, and Property, they talk about it in, in different terms. They say there's counter-revolutionaries and there's revolutionaries. The revolutionaries are the progressivists, they're the communists, they're these all these people that are in perpetual revolution. I'm thinking of French Revolution. Uh, the revolution is never over. It's always time for revolution like we see in Cuba today. And the counter-revolutionaries are those who are trying to combat it. And uh, Professor Plinio, the founder of the TFP, said, if the revolution is disorder, the counter-revolution must be a return to order. And I think this is a perfect uh, synthesis of what you're saying here because the progressive movement just continues onward and goes into further and further chaos and has, lacks no order. And orderliness is directly related to the divine attributes of God, namely the uni- unitive aspect of God. Um, so how, what is the disunity and how can we be counter-revolutionary and not just... Uh, perpetuate the un the uh, leaving things broken how they are
5: well i think that's a great question and, and so well stated and and i think what you're you're speaking to is the fact that this is a movement of rupture you know or, or as you say of breaking things apart or Disorder, um, they can't build anything or create anything, you know, based on their own internal logic. It's it's all about breaking things down. Um, Critical theory is really just the criticism of all that is. It's criticism of being. (laughs) Um, So the conservative movement, you know, or or any movement that's going to counter it, it has to be more than maybe just reactionary or just trying to play catch up. Like, oh, now they're onto this, and now we got to fight this. It has to be presenting a positive vision for what is good and true and beautiful Mm -hmm. um this was one of the impetus or motivations that carrie gress and i wrote for our 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 book series theology of home is that because we write about these issues so much and and she for so long uh that it really there really became a desire i think in 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 our hearts to present a.
2: This is Dale Alquist with a Chesterton Minute. Have you ever heard someone say, I want a religion that is not so dogmatic? Well, G.K. Chesterton says a religion that is not dogmatic is not a religion. A religion means something that commits a man to some doctrine about the universe. Anyone who believes anything is dogmatic. In fact, Chesterton says a teacher who is not dogmatic is not teaching anything. And if you think about it, a doctor who's not dogmatic is not who you want prescribing medicine or performing surgery. An auto mechanic who's not dogmatic is not going to be able to fix your carburetor. We want professionals to have specific training, but specific training means embracing very specific ideas. And yet we want a religion that is not dogmatic, as if standing before God is less important than repairing our car. Want more than a minute? Visit chesterton
5: more than just reactionary or just trying to play catch up like oh now they're onto this and now we're going to fight this it has to be presenting a positive vision for what is good and true and beautiful Mm -hmm. um this was one of the impetus our motivations that carrie gress and i wrote for our 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 book series theology of home is that because we write about these issues so much and, and she for so long uh, that it really, there really became a desire, I think, in, in in our hearts to present a positive vision of what the what the alternative looks like, you know. And I think be- and women have responded to them so well. I think because well there's photography there's also you know a lot of spiritual meat in the books in the writing um i i i hope and hope that's what came across but i think a lot of women thought you know I, we finally we see the life that we live you know reflected in something that's in the media you know some sort of some sort of visual medium um and and i think that that was the a, di- a disconnect that so many women have felt that I, you know in my community there you know we see you know all these women, with big families, the husbands who are you know becoming heroes because you know when you have a lot of children, you really become either a hero or you become a terrible person. You know mm-hmm. because it's so much is demanded of you daily, nightly. You know uh, it's relentless. The the pregnancies. You know the way that the man ha- man has to step up and take care of the kids because you know we're we need them so much um, when you're when you're when you're living this Catholic that type of you know open to life life. Um, and and I think that, that it just is so striking how beautiful it is, you know, and how how kind and loving and sacrificial and and just deeply good, and 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 I think that that we've been told for so long that it was an ugly, repressive, dark, somber life. Uh, excuse me, but um, and I and I think that that speaks to sort of what you're getting at, which is what is the vision of of uh, you know that the, is the true alternative to this. Let's 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 present that and let's you know present it boldly unapologetically, uh, because we have that on our side. You know, we have the real vision for where, what the answer is to the, the human longing. Um, is, it's, it's truly in the church and the truth of the church and the truth of reality, thinking with reality, which is what all Catholics are called to do.
3: Absolutely. The the church as a symbol or as the, well, we call it the domestic church in the family, of course, and I'm thinking of the uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and the politics, uh, Plato uh, and the Republic. We talk about how the a, a monarchy is the highest government, but it also has the highest potential for error. So you mentioned about uh, a father who's mean and is bad. He becomes a tyrant, uh, but a benevolent father, a father who's good and loves his family and takes care of his wife, provides for his children. He's a benevolent king, like I'm thinking King Louis the IX, uh, King St. Ferdinand. We have these uh, these. The symbols of of a great king, and then ultimately it's the it's the church. The church is the ultimate kingdom, uh, the kingdom of David, and we see that I guess the uh, the uh, the feminist movement, uh, which is part of this progressive uh, revolution, is to destroy the patriarchy, and that destroys everything it destroys everything from the very foundation of the family to the church itself and i think that's ultimately what it is is a is an attack against the church Uh, the question i have for you is trying to figure out which question to ask because i this is such a great uh, so awake not woke you got to check it out uh i'm gonna definitely be finishing the book i gotta re-skim over it before the interview but i'm gonna have to dive into this because this is great stuff but the idea of Moving on to a little bit of a different topic, the idea of toleration. I know you address this a little bit in your book, um, and you say, uh, my favorite, one of my favorite quotes that I quote all the time, so people listening, you probably heard me say this before. Fulton Sheen has a great essay on uh, toleration. It's, uh, I'll read it to you, and I want to get your comments on, on toleration. Uh, Fulton Sheen says, America, it is said, is suffering from intolerance. It is not. It is suffering from Tolerance. Tolerance of right and wrong, truth and error, virtue and evil, Christ and chaos. Our country is not nearly so overrun with the bigoted as it is overrun with the broad-minded. Your comments?
5: Yeah, no, I love that quote. Beautiful. And it reminds me, of this, there's a C.S. Lewis quote that I love too, that Every society is told to fight the errors of the generation before them. So we wind up, you know, running after a a fire or running after a flood with a fire hose. You know, (laughs) we're we're fighting the wrong thing. Um, And and I think that's absolutely right. I think tolerance in so many ways was uh, a Trojan horse that allowed a whole host of um, ideology to be built into our, uh, you know, indoctrinated into us in, in, in a lot of ways. And what they did is conflated tolerance, tolerance, and this is a Sheen goes back to a Sheen quote too. Tolerance of um, people with tolerance of uh, principles. Like mm-hmm. you, you're not supposed to tolerate error or uh, things that like atta- are an attack on a principle, but you're supposed to tolerate individuals. And it it, it go, it's you know it it reverses the old maxim that we love the sinner and hate the sin. Now we love the love the sin and hate the sinner, mm. why because we have with the introduction of tolerance, we were told that we can no longer judge what what is right and wrong, um, and to do so is to be to be hateful um, This gets back to the seeing into divining into the hearts of men that we start to see identify who is good and who is bad um, based not on on virtue or actions, but based on whether or not they assent to the principles of the new uh, ideo- progressive ideology. So you you are a hater if you don't embrace gay marriage, um, you know, and, and, and you can express and you can show that you're virtuous if you signal that you do. This is where vit- virtue signaling comes from. Um, you know, virtue signaling can happen on any side, but it's really built into this movement because sin becomes propositional at this point. You're not, your sins are not your actions. Your sins are your ascent to the ideology. Um, and this is an old socialist tactic that's tried to make so, um, abstract all of sin and all of virtue. Uh, you know, that our, our that our sins were, you know, things like, um, nationalism, uh, militarism, you know, the, these are not the struggles of the Christian life. I mean you can there are certainly debates to be had and things that, can be, that are right or wrong in the context of any of those conversations however this true the true um, effort to love is an effort that 's hidden and is in the personal life of every human being that that is you know most effect, most um, most uh, related to the person in front of them. How am I struggling against my ego? How am I being trying to be more generous with my children? How am I being kind to my neighbor? Um, these are the actions that make up a tapestry of love in the life of any Christian soul. Uh, and we have eradicated that that struggle. We've eradicated that beautiful, beautiful struggle and replaced it with ideology. Um, and so I think that tolerance really was the gateway to that, that whole elimination of a moral law. Cardinal, or, Card, I think it was Cardinal George had a great quote I, I used in my book that um, we are a society that permits everything and forgives nothing, mm. and I think that really speaks to what we've done in eradicating the moral law, but becoming harsher because of it.
3: Absolutely, I mean, we see it all the time with people who are uh, who violate the the new dogmas, and then they are on bended knees apologizing over and over again, and no one is ever forgiven. They're excised from polite uh, polite company and never let back in. Um, so we see that all the time of people of every sin is is permissible, but if you violate the dogma, then you will never be forgiven. Um, so, yeah, it's very interesting. The, how does this, I'm going to have two more questions and I'll let you, uh, and then I'll let you go. The uh, one question is, how does this relate to the church and have the ideas of critical theory of all these ideas? I'm thinking of specifically the historical critical method and liberation theology. How have these ideas of wokeism been infiltrated into the church?
5: Well, you know, I think the church is obviously a divine institution, also a human one, and the human element can become corrupted both personally and also in thought. Um, So these ideas have seeped into, you know, certain institutions. I I wrote an article for National Catholic Register about the critical theory happening at, at Catholic schools. Um, and you know, I'm hearing. I, start, I it went a bit viral, and I've been hearing from parents all over the country who have you know are paying for Catholic school education, trusting that this is they're going, kids are going to be formed in the faith. And instead, you know, teachers have their gender pronouns and their Zoom profiles, and they're being you know, they're given being given this intense critical race theory DEI sort of a training. Told that you know, all the, the statement that all cops are bastards is a fine thing to say. Um, you know, so there there is corruption that has that can happen in catholic institutions obviously um but i think it's and i think that it's important that we are not no longer complacent i think in just assuming that uh, our children are going to get the right education at, because the school's got the is a, is a catholic school um i think we really need to be doing our due diligence in all in all these things because you know there is a history of um critical theory infiltrating the church and that that they that is by design as well their main targets are the family and and the faith um so there's an effort to subvert the truths of the church from from within um as well uh you know so we have that you know obviously christ is victorious um but but there can be a lot of souls lost and a lot of confusion in the interim um in this battle and so i think catholics as much as we can be praying for our priests, praying for our church and and struggling for holiness, striving for holiness every single day.
3: Okay. I lied. I have an additional follow-up question to that last response. Um, How would you recommend to mothers and fathers to homeschool their kids? I know I went to Catholic school my whole life and, um, you know, looking back, I'm surprised at some of the things that I was taught and some of the things that I was not taught. Um, and my little sister, who was homeschooled, and she just graduated, She's uh, just graduated from high school at homeschool, and uh, she is leaps and bounds ahead of me in terms of where I was at her age and learning theology and the like, uh, and even history. Like, the, we don't get taught Catholic history, which is all of history. Uh, so, what would you recommend? Praise be to Jesus Christ. That will do it for the first hour of the show. And thank you very much to G- to uh, Guadalupe Radio Network and to Station of the Cross. If you're tuning in with Station of the Cross during the next segment, we will finish out the interview on the other side. Uh, so if you can tune in via the GRN, Guadalupe Radio Network app, or go online to GRN online forward slash CDT, GRN online dot com forward slash CDT. T, if you want to keep up to date with the next hour, if you can tune in with us during the next hour, but uh, we will have to finish out the rest of that interview. It's a great interview, praise be to God. Uh, Noel marrying was an excellent guest, and you're not going to want to miss the rest of the interview. But up next, we normally have our game show, but. Because it's a pre-recorded show, there's no game game show, so don't call in. We won't have anyone on the line to uh, answer phone calls, but we will have the game show again next week. And tomorrow, Joe and I will be back in studio, so don't fret. Uh, everything will be back to normal tomorrow morning when joe and i are back in the studio so praise be to god uh make sure to tune in during the next hour because we're going to have the gospel of the day stand of the day and we will get right back into the rest of the interview with noelle marrying on her book awake not woke uh thank you very much to to all of our sponsors thank you to station of the cross to guadalupe radio network to tune in tomorrow, same time, same place at 6 a.m., 7 a.m. Central to uh, 7 7, 7 a.m. to 8 a.m. Central. Nailed that. First try. Don't have to do that again. Praise be to God. We will see you over in the next hour. Thank you. God bless. God love you. And we'll see you in hopefully in one bout of two minutes.
1: Why do Catholics call Mary the Queen of Heaven? Doesn't God rebuke the Israelites in the Old Testament for worshipping a false goddess called the Queen of Heaven? Should we not refer to Mary with that title, therefore, since it's a title of a false god?
6: In Jeremiah 7, verse 18, God is indeed upset with the Israelites for worshipping a false goddess called the Queen of Heaven. However, just because God rebuked them for worshipping the false Queen of Heaven, doesn't mean that we cannot pay honor to the true Queen of Heaven, the Blessed Mother. That type of thinking would lead you to believe that just because people worship a false god that they call God, we therefore should not call the true god by that same name, God, because that's the same name the idolaters use for their god. That is faulty logic and it makes no sense whatsoever. Again, the fact that there is a false queen of heaven does not lead to the conclusion that we worship a false goddess when we call Mary the queen of heaven just as the fact that there is a false god does not lead to the conclusion that we worship a false god when we call our father in heaven God. And there is a true queen of heaven. We see this quite clearly in Revelation 12, verse 1. And a great portent appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Let's see. There's a woman. She's in heaven, and she has a crown on her head. I could be wrong, but I don't think that's the cleaning lady. No, it's the true Queen of Heaven, Mary, the mother of the male child who is to rule the nations. We do not worship Mary, we honor her just as Jesus honors her. So there is absolutely nothing wrong from a scriptural point of view in calling Mary the Queen of Heaven and in honoring her just as Jesus honors her. After all, if Jesus is the King, then Mary is truly the Queen Mother of Heaven. A
0: beacon of truth in a troubled world. This is the Guadalupe Radio Network. Radio for your soul. GloryandShine.com A generous underwriter of Catholic Drive Time. Welcome to your Catholic Drive Time. Keeping you informed and inspired. We love God. We ought to be able to talk about Him. Getting you started
1: on your day. With the latest in breaking news and information. From the Vatican to the White House and everything in between. It's serious. It's fun. It's your Catholic Drive Time.
3: Now here's your host, Joe McClain. Praise be to Jesus Christ. And guess what day it is. Today is Friday, Jr. It is Thursday, it's Thursday, it is almost, we're almost done with the retreat, and Joe and I will be back in studio tomorrow morning, so don't fret, but today is another pre-recorded show. Praise be to God. It's a great interview today with Noel Mehring on her book, Awake, Not Woke. Oh, it's going to be excellent. And I'm sure Joe and I are having a great time at the retreat. I'm sure we have, our, like if we were in studio, we would be talking about how amazing it is, how beautiful the chapel is, and how amazing the talks were. Uh, all this I'm sure we're going to be talking about when we get into the studio tomorrow. Uh, but today, I'm actually recording this on Friday, and it is a week from, almost a week from today, whenever this is being aired. But uh, praise be to God. We are going to have a little bit of a different format, so no breaking news today. Uh, no, uh, we will have a saint of the day. We will have a gospel of the day and, uh, but no breaking news, no good news segment of the day. And, uh, they, all segments will be uh, covered with Noelle Maring's interview on her book, Awake Not Woke. You know, I just have to say, I really enjoyed this interview. I thought it was a, um, a great topic. I can't wait to actually finish reading the book. I was able to skim over it before the interview and I listened to a couple of her her, um, Her other interviews that she's done. And this book is excellent. I just, I just love everything about it. It kind of reminds me of uh, Michael Knowles' book, uh, The uh, Speechless Controlling Words, Controlling Minds. That book, uh, this book, these two, I think, go together extremely well. These, they think, Michael Knowles does a really good job of showing forth the situation from a secular perspective and breaking it down for people who are not Catholic. And this book does an excellent job of showing the real solutions, which are is the faith. No other, there's no other solution out there. Anyway, the show will go on forward. We will have the Memorare. We'll pray the Memorare in just a second. We're not going to have a breaking news segment. Then we'll have Gospel of the day, Saint of the day, and the opposite order, and we'll have a brief Gospel reflection. Sponsored by um, veraboom.com forward slash CDT. And then we'll go to break. And after the break, we'll have the interview with Noel Maring. So uh, with a chock full of great content today. And tomorrow we'll be back in studio. And there's no game show today. So don't call in. No game show. Uh, But next week. So don't worry. Uh, Don't fret. This game show will continue tomorrow as, I mean, not tomorrow, it's next week on Monday. So on Monday, we will have a, uh, a regularly scheduled Catholic trivia game show. But for today, don't call in. Otherwise, no one's going to be answering. There's nobody on the phones. So you'll just be sitting on hold. I mean, you're free to do so if you would, if you'd like. But for today, Um, we are not going to have a game show. Alrighty, so praise be to God. We're going to jump into the gospel of the day, the saint of the day, and uh, a brief gospel reflection. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost, amen. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection implored thy help or sought thine intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, I fly unto thee, O Virgin of virgins, my mother, to thee do i come before thee i stand sinful and sorrowful O oh, mother of the word incarnate despise not my petitions but in thy mercy hear and answer me amen and uh no breaking news of the day and we'll go straight into the saint of the day the saint of the day is saint bernard of Clairvaux, who happened to be the one who wrote the memorare mm, interesting huh He was born in 1090 and was born near Dijon and died in Clairvaux, France. He was of a noble family and received a careful education in his youth. With his father, brother, and 30 noblemen, he entered the Benedictine Monastery of Chetau. Two two years later, he led a group of monks to establish a house in Clairvaux and became its abbot. The monastic rule which he perfected at Clairvaux became the model for 163 monasteries of the Cistercian Reform. He was a theologian, a poet, an orator, and a writer, a man of many, many talents. He is sometimes considered as a father of the church, Saint Bernard of Clairvaux. He was the second founder of the Cistercians, the Malefius Order, the and the apostle of the Crusades. So he would go on the Crusades and preach the Crusades. So people who say Crusades are bad, Saint Bernard of Clairvaux seemed not to think so. He would go on the Crusades with the Crusaders and preach on the Crusades, for the Crusades, and encouraged many to join. The miracle worker, the, he was a, known as a miracle worker. He was a reconciler of kings, leaders of peoples, and counselor of the popes. He has a very long resume. His sermons, from which there are many excerpts in the breviary, are, conspic, uh, are conspicuous for genuine emotion in the spiritual unction. And the celebrated Memorare is ascribed to him. He was the third son of an illustrious Burgundian family. At the age of 22, he entered the monastery of Chitao and he persuaded 30 other youths, along with his family, to join. He's the patron of beekeepers, bees, candle makers, channelers, wax melters, wax refiners, and Queen College, and in Cambridge. Interesting. And we will, I will pray the colic prayer for the feast of St. Bernard de Clairvaux. O God, who made the abbot St. Bernard, a man consumed with zeal for your house, and a light shining and burning in your church, grant that through his intercession, that we may be on fire with the same spirit, and walk always as children of light, through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Ghost, one God, forever and ever. Amen. St. Bernard of Clairvaux, pray for us. The Gospel of the Day is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. Jesus, again, in reply, spoke to the chief priests and the elders of the people in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be likened to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. He dispatched his servants to summon an inv- and the invited guests to the feast, but they refused to come. A second time he sent over servants, saying, Tell those invited, Behold, I have prepared my banquet, my calves and fattened cattle are killed and everything is ready. Come to the feast. Some ignored the invitation and went away. One to his farm, another to his business. The rest laid hold of his servants, mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged and sent his troops, destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then the king said to his servant, the feast is ready. But those who were invited were not worthy to come. Go out, therefore, into the main roads, and invite to the feast whomever you find. The servants went out into the streets and gathered all they found, the bad and the good alike. And the hall was filled with guests. And when the king came in to meet the guest, he saw a man there, not dressed in a wedding garment. He said to him, My friend, how is it that you came in here without a wedding garment? But he, re- he was reduced to silence. Then the king said to his attendants, Bind his hands and feet and cast him into the darkness outside, where there will be wailing and grinding of teeth. Many are invited, but few are chosen. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to Jesus Christ. The gospel of the day is uh, underwritten and sponsored by um, veraboom.com forward slash CDT. So thank you very much for allowing us to have the opportunity to comment on the gospel. And honestly, this gospel passage is one of my favorite gospel passages. Why is this one of my favorite gospel passages? Because it has some of my favorite, uh, objections that are being refuted here in this parable. It is excellent. It is excellent. So I'm going to walk you through this parable. What is our Lord trying to say here? Uh, there's a lot to unpack and, uh, we will, I think we should have enough time to get through it all today because we don't have, uh, we have cut out a lot of stuff for, from this segment because it's a pre-recorded show. So, number one is the kingdom of heaven may be likened to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Who's the son? Well, that's pretty clear. The king is the father. The son is the son, which is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He dispatched his servants to summon the invited guests to the feast, but they refused to come. Who was the servants in which he summoned initially? Well, we know those would be the Jews. So, the Jews were asked, hey, come to the feast. And what happened? The Jews rejected the The faith, we see that throughout the Old Testament, the uh, constant uh, cycle of rejection of our Lord. And then the coming back, our Lord sends the, uh, the judges to come and save the Israelites from their own captivity. They place themselves in by their disobedience to God's law, by their worshiping of false idols, by their mortal sins. And they fall away and they refuse to come to the feast, which our Lord prepared. Our Lord literally rains manna from heaven and gives them water from rocks and they still reject him. Our Lord has set, summoned us, you and I, but initially he summoned the Jews, and that was the feast that initially was rejected. A second time he sent out the servants, saying, tell those invited, Behold, I have prepared my banquet. My calves and fattened cattle are killed. Everything is ready. Come. Some ignored the invitation and went away. One to his farm, another to his business. They killed his servants. Okay, what is happening here? Well, in one sense, it's, it's, the, it's our Lord being killed. By the Jews, because the Jews, what happened? Our Lord keeps going back and says, But to the Jews, after they rejected him, he keeps coming back to him and saying, Come to the feast, come to the feast. And what happens? Well, we see in scripture, our Lord says a prophet is not welcome in his own home. He is often rejected, rebuked, and sometimes even killed. And so, uh, what does our Lord do after this? Well, He wants, one thing he does is he goes and destroys those murderers and burned their city. So what does that imply? Hmm, what is it, what is it, what is it, what is it it called when someone is burned for a long time, you know, or in an ultimate murder, an ultimate death? Well, that would be hell. No, that would be hell. Why, what happens in hell? You have eternal damnation. It is eternal death because eternal life is in heaven. Eternal death. Is in hell where the worm dieth not, and they burn their city. It'll be on fire. Uh, the The everything will be in flames. Everything will be burning and never uh, consumed, which is the uh, unconsuming fire that will burn, and you'll never ge- be desensitized from. It's the worst kind of fire because in a natural fire, we experience the flame and initially the flame may be so hot that it destroys the cells in our skin that we no longer feel the fires anymore. But for the fires of hell, this is not true. You'll never be desensitized for it. You'll never uh, get used to it. It'll never kill the cells in your body because initially you will just be a soul, and then at the second coming you will have your body, but your body will be a glorified body. It'll feel pain because it's a damned body, but it will still be able to feel the eternal pains that are waiting. What's the next point here? Our Lord then goes and says, okay, well, you know what? These people were not worthy. Now, some came. We saw that. Some came. So we know that some of the Jews converted and sort became followers of Christ. But many, and I would say even most, rejected him. And so what does our Lord do? Our Lord who desires the salvation of souls, who desires that all men be saved, that all come to the banquet, says, go out, therefore, into the main roads and invite to the feast whomever you find. Okay, so what happens? The servants, that's you and I, the disciples, those who are called to go out and preach the gospel to all nations, we go out and we say, okay, everybody come in. The, the doors are open. All are welcome. And so what happens? Okay, well, some come. So some come, some show up to the feast, they are come they're here for the bread of eternal life. But what does St. Paul say about the bread of eternal life? What does he say about eating the body and blood of our Lord? If you eat and drink of the body and blood unworthily, you die. You eat and drink your own damnation. And so what happens here? Our Lord, who is the king here, says that saw a man there not dressed in a wedding garment and said to him, my friend, how is it that you came in here without a wedding garment? Now, what is the wedding garment? The wedding garment can be understood in a couple ways. One way is that the purity of the person was the person in mortal sin? They decided to show up to the feast. They started to show up in mortal sin. They presented themselves for the feast, for the holy sacrifice of the Mass, to receive our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, present in reality, present body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Blessed Sacrament with Mount putting on his wedding garment. In another sense, in a more modern sense, people often bring up the objection, okay, well, you know, God doesn't care what I wear to church. God doesn't care. I can wear shorts and a t-shirt to church because, you know, God just wants me to show up. God just wants me to be there. Well, I mean, if you read this parable, it seems like that may not be true. It seems like our Lord desires that we dress up, that we give him the best that we can, that we provide all that we can to our Lord because we love him. Because he loves us, because he desires what is greatest for us. And so what should we do? We should dress appropriately for mass. We should dress with our, what we used to call our Sunday best. And so what happens here? He saw a man there not dressed in a wedding garment. And he said to him, my friend, how is it that you came in here without a wedding garment? And he bound his hands and feet and cast him into hell, where there'll be wailing and grinding of teeth praise be to God. Thank you, verywoman.com forward slash CDT for uh, sponsoring this Gospel Reflection segment. After this break, don't go anywhere. Uh, We will have Awake Not Woke Noel marrying right after the break, so don't go anywhere. God bless. God love you. See you on the other side.
4: It is here where you'll find the best marriage counselor, greatest healer, wisest teacher, and closest friend. It's a place where you'll escape the chaos of the world and find the lasting peace that only comes from God. Jesus is personally waiting to embrace you now with His divine mercy and healing love. Jesus is calling you home to His sacred heart today. I need a mercy. I need a
3: Savior.
5: are not the struggles of the christian life i mean you can there are certainly debates to be had and things that that are right or wrong in the context of any of those conversations however this true the true um effort to love is an effort that's hidden and is in the personal life of every human being that that is you know most effective most um most uh related to the person in front of them how am I struggling against my ego? How am I being trying to be more generous with my children? How am I being kind to my neighbor? Um, these are the actions that make up a tapestry of love in the life of any Christian soul. Uh, and we have eradicated that, that struggle. We've eradicated that beautiful, beautiful struggle and replaced it with ideology. Um, and so I think that tolerance really was the gateway to that, that whole elimination of a moral law. Cardinal, or, Card- I think it was Cardinal George had a great quote I, I used in my book that um, we are a society that permits everything and forgives nothing. Mm. And I think that really speaks to what we've done in eradicating the moral law, but becoming harsher because of it.
3: Absolutely. I mean, we see it all the time with people who are uh, who violate the the new dogmas, and then they are on bended knees apologizing over and over again, and no one has ever forgiven. They're excised from polite, uh, polite company and never let back in. Um, so we see that all the time of people of every sin is, is permissible, but if you violate the dogma, then you will never be forgiven. Um, so, yeah, it's very interesting. The, how does this, I'm going to have two more questions and I'll let you, uh, and then I'll let you go. The uh, one question is, how does this relate to the church and have the ideas of critical theory of all these ideas? I'm thinking of specifically the historical critical method and liberation theology. How have these ideas of wokeism been infiltrated into the church?
5: Well, you know, I think the church is obviously a divine institution, also a human one, and the human element can become corrupted both personally and also in thought. Um, so these ideas have seeped into you know certain institutions. I, I wrote an article for National Catholic Register about the critical theory happening at at Catholic schools, um, and you know I'm hearing I, start, I it went a bit viral, and I've been hearing from parents all over the country who have you know are paying for Catholic school education, trusting that this is they're going kids are going to be formed in the faith, and instead. You know, teachers have their gender pronouns in their Zoom profiles, and they're being, you know, they're given being given this intense critical race theory DEI sort of a training. Told that, like, you know, all, the, the statement that all cops are bastards is a fine thing to say. Um, you know, so there there is corruption that has that can happen in Catholic institutions, obviously. Um, but I think it's, and I think that it's important that we are not no longer complacent. I think in just assuming. That uh, our children are going to get the right education at, because the school is a, is a Catholic school. Um, I think we really need to be doing our due diligence in all in all of these things because you know there is a history of um, critical theory infiltrating the church, and that that they that is by design as well. Their main targets are the family and and the faith. Um, so there's an effort to subvert the truths of the church from from within um, as well. Uh, you know so we have that you know obviously the christ is victorious um but but there can be a lot of souls lost and a lot of confusion in the interim um in this battle and so i think catholics as much as we can be praying for our priests, praying for our church and, and struggling for holiness, striving for holiness every single day.
3: Okay. I lied. I have an additional follow-up question to that last response. Um, How would you recommend to mothers and fathers to homeschool their kids? I know I went to Catholic school my whole life and, um, You know, looking back, I'm surprised at some of the things that I was taught and some of the things that I was not taught. Um, And my little sister, who was homeschooled and she just graduated, she's uh, just graduated from high school at homeschool. And uh, she is leaps and bounds ahead of me in terms of where I was at her age and learning theology and the like. Uh, And even history, like we don't get taught Catholic history, which is All of history. Uh, So, what would you recommend for parents in this situation? What should they send their kids to public school, private school, homeschool? What do you say?
5: Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's going to be a a personal answer. There's not a one size fits all. Um, But I do think if your kids are in a school, public or Catholic, that is indoctrinating them, even even in a subtle way, uh, I think you have to pull that poison plug out from your kids, and that—that's our first obligation: is to protect their education um, because it's forming their souls. It's education can either form or deform, uh, and so we need to be careful what's happening there. But um, you know, we happen to live in a community with a fantastic classical small private Catholic school, and there are—they are—they do exist. I, I don't think it's extreme to say that it's worth, if you, if it possible, moving to a community that does have such a school, if if you don't feel that homeschooling is an option but that being said homeschooling is a fantastic option and there's a lot of places where there you know if it's a bigger homeschooling community there can be co-ops or there can be you know parent moms sharing the load or fathers teaching civics and you know or or literature seminars or things like that it's not everywhere but they are i think they're springing up more and more and i think that trend is going to continue so yes i certainly would suggest to parents that first look at the school your your kids are in and if it if it's not if it's if it's deforming them then take them out there has to be that no, there there has to be another solution to be found. It's that important.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. I I know do- indoctrination literally means to teach. And I was tweeting out, but uh, If you don't teach your kids, someone else will, either the true faith of the Catholic Church or the false secular faith of egalitarianism and Gnosticism. And I think that's really the truth of it. Like, indoctrination will happen. It's what are they going to be indoctrinated in? Uh, last question before we uh, say goodbye is the City of God. That was uh, the last chapter in your book. And I know you're referring back to St. Augustine. But actually, when I was reading it, I was thinking, especially the section on Our Lady... And I want you to relate this uh, back to Our Lady as well. The Mystical City of God by Venerable Mary of Agreda. A beautiful, beautiful book on the visions of Our Lady, of uh, Venerable Mary of Agreda on the life of Our Lady. and the City of God, Our Lord refers to Our Lady as a city of refuge, as a city of God. She herself is. And uh, how can can you relate this with the St. Augustine and Our Lady uh, with uh, some hope at the end?
5: Hmm. No that's beautiful. I have not read that book, but I love that image of our lady city of refuge. Uh yeah, I I wave the St. Augustine theme throughout. Um I love him personally and to have a devotion to him and also his mother St. Monica. Um, but you know, I love the image that he talks about in city of God city uh, that that um that they about suffering. Um, that, the, you know, suffering, the character, of the, it's, not, it's not so much about what the fact of suffering so much as is the character of the sufferer who's going to d- d- determine whether or not the fruit of that suffering is rot or if it's, um, you know, a beautiful perfume. Um, that how we suffer is how, in some ways, how we help build up the city of God. Um, and I think this movement is really aimed at preventing us from knowing how to suffer well. And suffering well is incredibly important. And when we don't know how to suffer well, we suffer loudly. You know, mm-hmm. we suffer almost performatively. Um, but but our Lady, I, I mean, I, I think that our Lady is the is such the key to what we need right now. She represents all of the virtues and all of the goodness that people long for, and she's so. Um, G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton has this great quote about her. I think I put I might have put it in the book too, but it's so powerful. Where he talks about when he the final um, straw that broke the camel's back in his conversion. Was this image of Our Lady that he kept coming back to in his mind eye, because that when he when he hated the church and wanted to run from the church, he couldn't help but think of her. That she was so uniquely a characteristic in his mind of everything that the church represented, um, you know, and so distinctively Catholic, you know, and that 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 really was such a, a compelling pull for him. Um, so I think we need to think of her as you know as we were talking earlier about how women are can hold things. Carrie writes about this a lot. Um, and we have it in our Theology of Home books, too. But that that we are sh- women, womanhood is a shelter. Uh, and she perfectly embodies that, that she is, you know, the, the ship that can get keep us, uh, take us through this storm. So, yeah, go to Our Lady always at the end of the day, go to Our Lady. And when you wake up, go to Our Lady. Um, and, and I think that she is really going to be the beacon of hope. Mm-hmm. Um, that draws us back to her son. So yeah, uh, beautiful. I'm so glad you asked me that question. What a, what a, what a wonderful way to end.
3: Amen. Amen. As yes, Our lady, she, if you're, if you're not have if you don't have a devotion to our lady, it's time to foster a devotion to our lady. She is, uh, I love the section. I read the last chapter of the book in full and the, um, in it, you talk about that the Protestant revolution, uh, one of the worst things about it was the loss of the cult of our lady, because without her, the sense of womanhood, the sense of men wanting to go off to the Battle of Lepanto, praying the Rosary, chanting the Salve Regina, as the as the Christian forces that were under under the belly of the Muslim boats that were slaves heard the Salve Regina, sort of rowing the opposite direction to assist them. Like that, this is so lost. It's all lost, and devotion to Our Lady is so so necessary. Um, yeah. But yes, thank you very much. Uh, the book. Uh, where can we get it? Where can people follow you? Uh, close us out with uh, all the details.
5: Yeah. If I could just add one last Absolutely. thing to what you just Absolutely. said, because it's inspired me. But that if the if the avenue of corrupting society was through fatherhood, the restoration is through Our Lady, because you want to see a society of real men and real authority servant leaders you have get build a society with a devote Marian devotion men with Marian devotion that is the, the that is a, such a, a healing road for our society amen you can get the book um, at, at our website theologyofhome.com we have a shop on that website it's also available through our publisher t- or my publisher tanbooks.org, is I think the site um, and it's on all of the anywhere you get books I think you know Barnes and Noble, Amazon all those places carry it
3: awesome and if people want to uh, get in touch with you or follow you or whatever it is.
5: Yeah, I mean, I'm on social media, Noel Maring, and my website's noellmerring.com, 1R, and also theologyofhome.com. There's a subscription, it's free, and we send out curated media content in one email a day. It's really great, um, for uh, particularly for women, but we actually have a lot of male fans, men fans, too. We have a lot of uh, spiritual meat on it and also fun stuff for recipes and home, home decorating and things like that
3: too. Awesome. Praise be to Jesus Christ. Thank you very much for being on with us and uh, thank you for joining us today. And if you tune in tomorrow, we will be back live tomorrow morning as our regularly scheduled programming. So uh, it's tune in 6 a.m. Central, 7 a.m. Eastern right here uh, in the same exact place, same exact time. And we'll see you tomorrow. And that'll do it for today's show. And thank you very much for tuning in with us. God bless you. We'll be back tomorrow morning to uh, with a live show. So we'll be here, Joe and I. So if you want to hear how our retreat went, how my trip to Ohio went, and all that jazz, we'll be back tomorrow morning in, uh our regularly scheduled programming live. From the studio. No more pre-recorded shows for a little while and we will be back here same time, same place and you won't want to miss this because I'm sure we have some crazy stories to tell from The Retreat and I know I'm going to have some stories to tell from Ohio. And so you won't want to miss all that. It's coming up on uh, this time tomorrow morning. So praise be to God. No after show because this is a pre-recorded show. So we're not actually live in studio. So no pre-recorded no after show today. But God bless you. God love you. And we'll see you tomorrow and next week we have the game show. So get your phones ready. Hop on grnonline.com forward slash CDT. Write down that number and be sure to call in uh, next week for the game show. God bless you. God love you. And we'll
6: Be sure to share more than just us today. Share Jesus with everyone you meet.
1: Bye now, and God love you.